is uh, Zach DePrima, and in line with Alex's talk from this morning, we wanted to do a panel discussion uh, on the task of preaching. Uh, so we have on this panel three preachers and pastors with us. First, we have Clint Darst, uh, and if each of you brothers could say uh, how long you've been at the church you're pastoring uh, and how long you've been in pastoral ministry. So Clint Darst of King's Cross Church. We just celebrated our fourth anniversary yesterday, so it was an exciting day for us as a uh, church. Uh, and then I pastored previously four years prior to that as well. Amen. Andy. So I've been at First Baptist Durham for 23 years, just past my 23rd anniversary. Um, before that, my wife and I were church planners in Japan. And before that, I was pastor of a church in Massachusetts for about 15 months. Uh, Alex DePrima, pastor of Emmanuel Church, uh, four years, I believe. We just celebrated our four-year anniversary. Amen. So we have a mix of very practical questions this afternoon and then maybe some, uh, some, some deeper questions. So we want to start off, uh, I want to just ask each of you men, thinking about preaching, uh, most of you uh, probably preach 40, 50 times a year. Uh, how much time on average do you give to preparing a sermon in a given week? We'll start sure. with Alex. Uh, it is rarely, rarely less than 15 to 20 um, that's normally what I'm trying to make sure I guard. If I have more time, great. I don't often get more time than that, just with the busy rhythms of, of pastoral ministry. Uh, but I'm not at all a stranger to that, that six to eight hour, you know, Lord, I've, I've done all I can this week. Need you to, to breathe flesh onto these dry bones. So, but about 15 to 20, I try to make sure I can steward that if I can. I really don't know the exact number. I give all of Tuesday to study um, and work on a sermon that I'll preach, and I'm usually about five weeks ahead, so the sermon I'm writing this so, week. Wait a second. Did everybody just hear that? See, I've heard that, but I thought that was just a matter of folklore. No. Andy, did, you prepare sermons five, eight weeks out in advance. Not eight. I've never, never been eight, um, but five. five oh, okay. He's five only weeks. human. I mean, yeah, no. <laughs> No, I, um, yeah, it's beneficial uh, for me because it gives me more time. That's why it's hard for me to answer the question you're asking because I, uh, when it's in the queue, I'm still working on it. I'm thinking about it all the time. I'm thinking about illustrations, thinking about applications, thinking about the structure of the sermon. Then the way that the rhythm goes for me is then on Thursday afternoon, I take this Sunday sermon out of that five-week queue and read over it entirely. Always needs shortening. Always. I have to trim it down and get it to a certain level. Um, Psalm 90, uh, Moses said, teach us to number our days uh, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think preachers need to number their minutes that they may gain a heart of wisdom. Your people only have so much they can hear. <laughs> so I try to get it down. I shoot for about 40 minutes. Um, if I hit it, okay. Nobody's worried about it, but I am. Um, because I think what happens is it's like you put money in a parking meter and at some point it just clicks off. I can see people clicking off. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think attention span is not what it used to be. So I'd like to push that a little bit, like to challenge it. But at any rate, long story short, I shorten it down to a certain number of pages, go over it very carefully. Now it's very much uploaded again in my mind. And then on Friday, Saturday, I'm thinking about it. I do a, a full preaching on Saturday evening um, out loud alone. I time the pages, I write down notes, cross things out, and I'm ready to go, and then Sunday morning. So I can't really answer you how many cumulative minutes were spent on that sermon. One more thing is, you know, I really believe in the value of extended memorization of Scripture, of memorizing whole books of the Bible. And it's, it's not, it's not un, unusual for me to preach on a book that I have memorized 20 years ago and that I've reviewed many, many times. I don't hold on to books that I've memorized. I do let them go. I can't still recite them two years later, but they're in there. And so, therefore, all of the time that I spent memorizing was preparing for that sermon. So, again, cumulatively, I really can't answer your question. I've been thinking about those verses for 20 years. I think uh, probably I should go sit down now after hearing their answer. <laughs> no, I... Um, I don't know the exact time. I would guess it's, it's uh, probably more in the 8 to 12 hour window um, on average. But I'm, I'm an integrator, so I'm always preparing at one level, uh, having conversations, thinking on illustrations, applications. and um, So kind of always and then, and then not as much. Um, I'm, yeah, the thought of five weeks out, um, yeah, there's kind of the Red Sea, and then there's five weeks out. <clears throat> and those, those would be as miraculous at some level. I, I'm, yeah, so I'm, for me, so 
I'm, I'm always in these moments really humbled, like, Lord, I have so far to go and so much to learn. Um, but, lot, yeah, mainly meditation. Mondays I try to get uh, just my head in the text exegetically um, and, and just get a decent exegetical outline on Monday. And then I'm meditating and thinking on that all week. Um, my practice that I'm, I'm hesitant to say in this context, I've been in a conference like this where I was then made fun of later for it. But, I, I, yeah, lots of meditation. I have kind of my main point and, and my general flow of the sermon and the outline. Um, but usually I wake up Sunday morning about 4 or 5 a.m. and start typing. Um, and uh, and it's, I've gathered a bunch of stuff. I've put a lot of things together. But there is a last-minute pressure that uh, I remember one uh, early days of preaching. Uh, there was one uh, week that I was determined not to do that. And so I'm like, Lord, I don't care what else happens this week. I'm going to have a manuscript on Tuesday. And, um, and I worked on it. I tried, and I could not come up with an, with an introduction. And so sure enough, I go to bed Saturday night with that anxiety of I don't have my introduction yet. And I, my alarm goes off at 4 a.m. Sunday morning. And as soon as my feet hit the bed, introduction ideas there. And I literally started chuckling. I was worried I was going to wake my wife up laughing. Like, Lord, I tried all week to come up with an introduction. So again, so I, I put in the study, I put in the work, I put in the exegetical work and the commentary work and, and you know, check and make sure I've got all the major things answered. But often uh, some of the final, um, like homiletical decisions, I end up, I end up kind of uh, writing those on Sunday morning. Do each of you brothers preach from a manuscript? I do. Um, it's, it's a very ex- extended outline. It's not a manuscript, but it's very um, filled out outline. Have you always done that? No. Um, the, the outlines I preached um, from in my first two years are very sparse. They're like eight pages long with just headings, and I don't have any idea how I preach those messages. Um, but now I know. I mean, I think the thing would hit, and I would do it right in front of there. I've been challenged, I think, both John Calvin and... Um, uh, Spurgeon preached without notes. Um, if you've ever read a Spurgeon sermon, that will boggle your mind that he did that without yes. notes. Yeah. It's just unbelievable. The guy was a super genius. But Spurgeon's very spicy in his lectures to my students. He's very edgy. I don't know if you ever read it. He's sarcastic a lot of times. He's funny. But he, he challenged specifically on preaching without notes. He said, uh, advocating it, he said, if you, uh, if you have the gift, then why don't you trust it? If you don't have the gift, why are you in the pulpit? So I was like, look, bro, you know, not everyone wears the same armor into battle. You know, I'm not used to that thing. We each need to do our own thing. So if you're good at preaching without notes, then preach without notes. But for me, the extended manuscript or outline, not manuscript, has worked for me. I would do more like an extended manuscript like Andy. And um, if I were to read an address to a group, it would be... I know I have about 7,000 words to fill 50 minutes. What I have in the pulpit is probably half that. And kind of, kind of jumping out at different points from that manuscript, we'll reference it uh, very uh, um, deliberately at certain points. If I'm explaining something that, where maybe the language that I crafted I especially like, or I think um, there's some special care that needs to be um, given, I don't want to speak extemporaneously and confuse, and so sometimes I will literally word for word, you know, have things out there. But it's more like I think what you mean, Andy, with an extended outline. Yeah. Alex, given your talk on Lloyd Jones' view of preaching, uh, particularly those four pillars that you you brought our attention to, um, Alex, you're you're a bit of a Spurgeon expert. You've given a lot of attention to his ministry. Andy, I know you've given you have a background in John Calvin. Uh, what would those two men maybe affirm or add on to Lloyd-Jones' view of preaching? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones would be very similar in their view of preaching. So uh, a sense that the preacher is an ambassador, a representative for the Lord to speak with authority, to speak with hopefully something like an anointing and, and unction. I used that word a couple of times, and a couple of brothers mentioned they don't know that word. That's an old Puritan word, I think. Speaking of this very thing we're talking about, okay, so that thing that God, the Holy Spirit, must supply uh, in order for our preaching uh, to be owned of Him and to have the power and the effect that we hope that it will have by, by His blessing. That's not something you can create or summons. It's something that He must give. Now, I think there's such a thing as pursuing an anointing, and Spurgeon would speak of that. 
So the, in Lloyd-Jones as well, the last quote that I ended on is seek this power, pursue this power, seek this anointing. There's a way to do that, and that might be worth talking about. Spurgeon spoke a lot about that. He would urge the 900 or so men that came through his, his training college, the pastor's college, uh, to pursue that kind of unction, that kind of anointing. So I think very similar in that sense. And then even in their approach to preaching, I mean, Spurgeon's, I think Lloyd-Jones studied a lot more than Spurgeon. Um, Spurgeon had more in the way of native gifts than, than, than Lloyd-Jones. I think preaching, or pr- preparation for preaching was more agonizing for Lloyd-Jones than it was for Spurgeon. Spurgeon often would not give a thought to his sermon until Saturday night and would spend all of maybe four or five hours. And um, I'll say this about Spurgeon, having read a lot of his sermons. I agree that the man is, is a machine. He's just a bright and shining light. You read his sermons. If you're not edified, I don't know that you're a Christian, but, but I will say this. There is something at times lacking in the way of exegetical rigor and depth in Spurgeon's sermons. I would say your man, Calvin, is a better model in that respect. So Spurgeon is a model, and I would say Lloyd-Jones has more in the way of exegetical rigor, though I think he at times would do things that I would not regard as exemplary. So, so, so though I think he is seeking to be a textual preacher and expound passages of Scripture, and he, he always endeavored to do that, brothers, Lloyd-Jones brought a lot that was extraneous to the passage into that sermon. I mean, you just can reflect on that and decide for yourself. You know, these, these guys are far beyond what any of us here on this platform will ever be. But um, anyway, I'm, I'm far away from your question now. But Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones would be very similar. Lloyd-Jones did much more in the way of preparation, but I think what they were expecting to happen in the preaching event was almost precisely the same thing. Yeah, yeah I would say that um, when you were describing what Lloyd-Jones, you know, an encounter with the living God, mm-hmm. I thought, I think that would be Calvin's goal as well. And uh, he ended all of his sermons with the same call to prayer. Now let us fall down before the majesty of his grace. You know, this kind of thing. Let us fall down. There's always this let us fall down aspect every time. And it was a sense of the greatness and majesty of God. I leaned on, on Calvin's sermons on Job in my preparation. I'm just finishing now a sermon series through Job. And it was just a sense of awful encounter, awe-filled encounter with the majestic God. Uh, which is, I think, really the essence of the book of Job. It's basically God confronting us out of a whirlwind in the midst of our misery and sorrow when we are tempted to charge God with wrongdoing and to accuse him of wrongdoing, that we would never do that, ever, but only draw near to God and find from him all the help we need in the midst of sorrow. Calvin was good at that, very strong at that. I think Lloyd-Jones would have done the same thing. Zach, can I ask you, just to turn to be the questioner myself for a minute, Zach studying Charles Simeon, Cambridge preacher in the early 19th century, late 20th, late, late 18th? Late 18th century, yeah. Uh, uh, you share with me a quote about what Simeon was trying to achieve, something about God through the preacher's life. Yeah, Can you share that with the brothers? Yeah, Charles Simeon, he, he actually had a lot to say about the congregation's role in preaching, which is something I want us to talk about in a little bit. But he has this quote where he just asks, uh, where are the people, where are the congregations that are... are ready to look upon God through the preacher. And I just think that's a, just a choice vision for what a congregation, what a preacher, how a preacher should view himself. I don't think that elevates the preacher to the sense of uh, elevating his self-confidence or his own pride or anything like that. I think it uh, presents a higher view of God and his word. And that's the task that help these people see Christ, help these people see the Lord, help them have a higher view of the holiness of God. A question I want to hear from each of you, um, if you're looking at um, not broader evangelicalism, uh, but more our circles, this is a family conversation, what elements of true preaching, biblical preaching, do you brothers see most lacking today, whether in sister churches, your own churches, men you're raising up, uh, what elements do you see lacking, and would you like us to reclaim Clint? Um, I mean, I think there is a longing uh, from people, uh, yeah, Christians, the congregation, to give me the rich and robust doctrine and connect it to, so the orthodoxy to the orthopraxy. Like, how does this empower life? And I think, um, yeah, I I don't know that I wouldn't be critical and say it's lacking, 
Um, I think there is a, you know, in the world we live, in the cultural moment we live, there's some who want only one or the other, uh, and you're seeking to, to be faithful and do both. Um, and I, I think that can lead to a, um, either, in the cultural moment, either being dominated by the cultural conversation, and that being in controlling most of your preaching kind of applications, illustrations, etc. Um, and then I think some who don't address those things at all, and then the congregation feels like, like you're not at all helping me think through all the cultural things I'm struggling. So I think right now in this moment, uh, I think one of the things I'm longing, Lord, help us be faithful to, with the word, speak prophetically, speak the truth of Scripture into this moment. Uh, it is a living word. Um, there's nothing new under the sun. Help us to preach and teach it in such a way that it, it is helping the widow uh, who's all alone and helping the young person that's like, I'm growing up in a world so different from my parents and the parents who are discouraged by their kids are growing up in a world that's so different. Like, help us to do that and apply it and illustrate it in such a way uh, that it encourages uh, along that path um, with an unashamed allegiance to Christ and his kingdom. Uh, and then wherever that leads us by way of how popular culture might think about us, that, uh, amen, let, it, let, it, let the dust settle where it may. Uh, as Luther, Luther would say, my conscience is bound to Scripture. I'm not, I'm not God, we're going we're gonna to do that, but that Scripture has something to say in how we live today. So I think, uh, I think one of the tensions, I think, is there, there can be an extreme uh, obsession with addressing the cultural things or maybe a, a silence about those things. And so just that the Lord would help us have a biblical, faithful uh, engagement and application to those things um, while keeping Christ would in. you say in, the ability to speak prophetically to, to the culture? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Andy? Um, I don't get out much on Sundays. I'm mostly at First Baptist Church, um, so I'm not really sure what's going on. But um, I hear from church members who are members of our church who have gone away for a while and come back to visit how hard it has been for them to find a church like First Baptist Durham in their city. And it, it really comes down to a pastor who will simply trust the scripture enough to spend his time preaching it. That that's what the sermon's about, what we are calling expository preaching that pastors will trust the bible enough to make that their work they're not that's not happening out there very much i don't think my opinion counts for much because i'm not a veteran preacher and i haven't i i also don't know what lots of other people are doing just a sense i would throw out there uh, that i have is that um i don't know that people are thinking carefully enough about the difference between preaching and teaching um so we were with six or seven brothers yesterday after the service here talking about what preaching is. And I just asked them, do you brothers believe there is a difference between preaching and teaching? And everyone's like, oh, we definitely do. Different Greek words are used. There does seem to be a different activity that's going on in the scriptures when, when preaching is in view. I would just encourage my peers here to have a good answer to that question and a good biblically informed sense in your own mind. What is the difference between preaching and teaching? And to give a lot of thought to that. So when, I, when, I'm, when I'm out in other places hearing preaching, I just wonder sometimes, hey, that, that was true enough material and content, um, and I, I'm betraying my own opinion now, that, but there, there wasn't something of the pressing of that material mm -hmm. onto the people. There wasn't, there wasn't an expression of authority and spirit-given power. That word power, some people hear that and they immediately think of the abuse of power. I don't mean that at all. I just mean that, that the way Paul spoke about preaching there was this force behind it. There was something, something that the Spirit was doing. There's a unique thing that's accomplished in preaching mm -hmm. that I don't think is accomplished in a small group Bible study in the same way or a Bible class or, or something like that. Um, and, and we were commenting to each other yesterday having this conversation. It's hard to come up with good language to explain the difference. I struggle to do that. But I would insist there is a difference, and we should give a lot of reflection. Preachers should give a lot of reflection on what that is and um, as they develop their view of preaching. Yeah. Andy, would you add to that, the difference between preaching and teaching? Well, I liked hearing what Alex said, and I told him that right before we came up here. Um, so a, a sense of that anointing and encounter with the living God happens in preaching, which doesn't happen as much in teaching. But I don't think anybody would argue with it or, or be upset if they came to a Wednesday night time of teaching and they had an encounter with the living God. I think they'd be very happy about that. So it'd be exciting. Any time is good. Any time. And I don't mean to suggest it's a very sharp and fine line. There are times when teaching becomes preaching when that was not the effort at all. Right. You know, but I, I find it helpful to think that preaching is not less than teaching. Mm -hmm. But I would insist that it has to be something more. 
I'd love to hear you, you brothers, speak to younger men that are seeking to grow in preaching. It's just a, a sad fact when, when we consider brothers like Martin Lloyd-Jones and Charles Spurgeon, these great and shining lights. I mean, Spurgeon was a boy preacher. Uh, it was very well formed at 17 years old. Lloyd-Jones came out of the gate and just seemed to have this anointing. It's not like that for most of us civilians that are, are trying to uh, find our footing when it comes to preaching. Um, what advice do you brothers give as you seek to raise up younger preachers? Uh, I hear a lot of men say, hey, hey, you need to find your voice. Do you find that to be helpful advice? Um, advice other than just going out there and doing it and getting reps. Uh, how would you advise younger preachers? So, <clears throat> love the Bible. Just swim around in the scriptures uh, and discover um, the glorious God of grace again and again and again, such that like fire shut up in your bones, like you've got to, you've got to share it. And then as a young preacher, listen to good preaching and, and, and read good books about good preaching. Um, yes, to every opportunity to preach. Brother, you work on your sermon? <laughs> you all just carry on. I'm preparing my answer. <laughs> Sorry, continue, Clint. Um, so, yeah, so swim around in the Bible, listen good to preaching, read, read uh, good books about preaching. Um, but just make it your aim to love God in his word and ask his spirit to help you share um, with whomever you can in one-on-one conversations, in teaching opportunities, and, and, and if he'll give opportunity preaching. Um, but if, if, if uh, we just challenged, we had a young man in our church who just thir- turned 13 years old and one of our elder sons and kind of wanted to have a rite of passage moment where we just shared exhortations with him, laid, laid hands on him and prayed for him. Uh, and I actually, the text I went to was 1 Timothy 3. And, uh, and I said, now, I know this is going to sound strange. Let me read it first and let, let you know. Uh, but I want you to aspire to be this kind of man. It's up to God or not whether or not he calls you to be a pastor. But you ought to make it your conviction that I want to be, I don't, I don't want the reason I don't become a pastor is because I'm not qualified. I want to be qualified to be a pastor. It's up to the Lord whether or not he calls me. And so I would just say take that to preaching and just say, no, I want to be able to preach the word faithfully, whether or not it's from a pulpit or to my own you know, wife and children uh, or to my neighbor um, or in whatever conversations. Uh, and then, again, learn, learn, learn. And that's, that's so much of what I feel like um, eight years in to kind of the week in, week out, I'm like, I, I feel like I've got a ton more to learn than I know. Um, and so just that, ask the Lord to, to keep that hunger there and, uh, and just keep, yeah. I would like Andy to go last and speak to Clint and I, who are younger preachers, along Amen. with all the other younger preachers here. My answer comes from, from uh, that, that biography itself. The question is, what advice would you give to young preachers um, like myself pursuing this kind of, of vision of, of preaching? Um, I was mentioning this quote to some of the brothers at lunch. This is from volume two of that biography. Uh, There was a man named Dr. Alan Redpath. He was the pastor of Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh in the 60s. Have you ever heard of Derek Prime? I think Derek Prime was his successor. And um, he wrote a letter to Lloyd-Jones on the occasion of his retirement in 1968. And this is the quote that, that, that stood out to me. He said, I have marveled at the grace of God and the anointing of the Spirit constantly maintained upon you over 30 years of ministry. This can only be the outcome of the building of a secret history with God in your own life, which has been a tremendous challenge and example to hundreds of others, including myself, who would have fared better if we had followed it in such a disciplined way. Um, That idea of a secret history with God being what in a sense, was the secret to that anointing that Lloyd-Jones experienced. Then Murray goes on to write, if Martin Lloyd-Jones' characteristics as a Christian were to be further analyzed, there can be no doubt that what should be put first was his consciousness of God. He believed and he knew that God deals personally and individually with his people and that their highest privilege in time and eternity is to have communion with him through his son, Jesus Christ. For such fellowship with God he longed. And one could not be in his presence without being soon reminded that in his scale of priorities, all else was secondary. So, so my answer would be, I, I don't think it's impossible that God would own the preaching of a man who's not walking closely with God, but it would seem to be his usual pattern mm-hmm. that a man who is stewarding this secret history with God, yeah. this communion and deep fellowship with the living God, 
uh, is better positioned, if you will, uh, to be owned of God. If I could even really use that language and that way of describing it. One more thing I'll just say, there, there's a, a man, a former pastor of mine who knew Lloyd-Jones, his name is Bill Hughes, he's now retired and in England, and I was talking to him about this talk that I gave, and he, he, he saw Lloyd-Jones preach many times, talked with Lloyd-Jones about preaching, and I was asking him to give his perspectives, and it seemed at some point Pastor Hughes was a little bothered by the line of questioning that how do we realize this, Pastor Hughes? How can we do this in our own ministries? And he just sort of stopped me on point and said, Alex, the, the unction came from everything that was unseen. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I, think, I think that would be something I'd want to say to you. Here's a, a 23, 24-year-old guy who's beginning to think about preaching, thinking he might be called to preach. Walk with God, brother, and hope that he owns you as a vessel and as an instrument in the context of that walk to, to speak to his people. If I could just say, just as a younger man who's been in a church for a few years, if you are a younger man, um, and perhaps you are longing for and pining for more reps and opportunity to preach, um, you might not have those in every season, but you can just always grow in holiness. Like, at all times, you, your soul can prosper and you can continue to grow. I think of McShane, uh, a holy minister is a terrible weapon in the hands of God. It was the real secret of his soul's prosperity. It was an unbroken fellowship with God. I can always grow in holiness. Yeah, I, I love the text that you seem to zero in on, First Timothy 3, and especially verse 1. If anyone sets his heart on being an overseer, desires a, a noble or a beautiful task, so that a young man would have a sense of the beauty of this calling, even if he never ends up an elder or a preacher, it, that, that sense of the beauty and that holy ambition yeah. to be a servant of God, he at least can be that in his own family. Yeah. Um, and it will do him no harm and only good if you look at the qualifications for eldership, they're mostly just Christianity up and running in someone's life, yeah. in addition to the gift of teaching. So that, that a young man would have a sense of the beauty of that calling and that it would it organize an ambition a holy ambition organizes your life and moves you in a direction and so that would help him and then the fact that it flows organically from your relationship with christ i am the vine you are the branches you know apart from me you can do nothing and then again you know i just keep saying it start memorizing whole books of the bible you know it's like is that possible yes it's possible is it possible without hard work no but it is absolute blue chip stock. You will not regret owning as many shares of it as you possibly can. So start storing it up and then see what God does with you. He'll use you in a mighty way. I heard a a prominent pastor recently say, uh, he was advising church planters and uh, young pastors to spend no more than six to eight hours in sermon prep because there are far more important things that require your attention as a church planner. What do you brothers think about that? Dogs eat the meat. Well, I don't think there's anything more influential in, any, in the life of any local church throughout the week than the sermon. It is the single most influential and impactful thing that happens in every local church every week. So what could be more important than that and being prepared for that? So that the language is ejected immediately with, what does it say it again, more important things? Is that what you said? There are far, far more, more important, important things that require your attention. So what would they be? I would just push back with a question. Tell me what those other far more important things are, and then we'll start working on the word important. There is nothing, there's nothing more impactful in the life of the church. Now, we, we have plurality of elders at First Baptist um, Durham, and we all have equal authority uh, based on our constitution and bylaws, but we don't have equal influence. Everyone knows that I have the most influence in our local church because of the, the, the office that's entrusted to me of being the regular preacher of the word. And if I were to become sick or die and someone else, then that person would have the single most influence in the life of the church because it's just week after week after week after week preaching the word. There is nothing more impactful than that in the life of local church. So I think that's bad advice. Whatever, whatever that is, bad advice. <laughs> Thanks for clarifying that at the end. We weren't, we weren't sure. <laughs> Clarify, yes. No, no, not good. Yeah, I, I'm, I think it's an unhelpful tweet. I saw it uh, as well, and that's, that's why I hesitated. I was just going to look this direction. <laughs> um, yeah, I want to assume the best intentions about the brother and why he would have said it. Um, I 
So I hope the intentions were good. I just disagree with the, uh, the sentiment. I, the preaching of the word is going to equip the saints' work of ministry. This is, this is, and again, this is a we're gathering to sit under the word of God and hear from God. So even just the language, more important than hearing from God. I, yeah, I just think it's an un, unhelpful category, it's an un, unhelpful post. Um, yeah, so yes, we need to share our faith. Yes, we need to meet people. Yes, we need to be in the community. Yes, there's, there's other things that, that I imagine he's, he's trying to raise their value. And I would say amen, not to diminish the other, though. That, that, that's, a, that's unhelpful, so let's raise the value of both. Uh, and say, hey, if you're not willing to work really hard and put in a whole lot of hours, you ought not plant a church. Because mm-hmm. like, it's going to take both and, not, not either one. Yeah, I would, I would want to go on the other side, though, and push back on those that would say the more hours you spend on a sermon, the better. That isn't true either. Like, like 25 is better than 20 and 30 is better than 25, and it just never ends. That's just simply not true. could be a, a sense of uncertainty in your own heart. You're not confident in what God's shown you after six hours or eight hours of study that you need to keep going and going and going and reading more and more commentaries and all that. I would say there's a sweet spot in between there somewhere. Yeah. There's no office of preacher. His office of pastor. So I think the best uh, understanding of what this brother is after is that uh, don't neglect care for the flock. Uh, don't neglect attention to the inner life of the congregation and serving your other elders on that. I'm just concerned, and this would go along with some of the things I was just kind of kind of throwing stones at in the talk. You know, brother, you know, a bunt single's fine. Hey, just get up and say something true about Jesus. I don't want to be too hard on that kind of language because I know where that comes from and it's, it's encouraged me at times. I'm just, I'm just a little concerned, like, like, you should try to preach great sermons all the time. Like, that would seem obvious to me, you know. Study as much as you can to the, to the, the I should say study the best you can and uh, Prove yourself, a man approved in the work. Immerse yourself in these things, Paul tells Timothy. Give yourself to this, and you should want to build your church in part on a feast of truth for the people of God. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't sort of glory in the, well, as long as it's something we can throw out. That, no, no, no. Brother, study and work to, to manifest yourself approved for this thing, rightly dividing the word of truth. Give yourself to this. And seek to preach excellent sermons under the Lord's blessing and through the Holy Spirit's help. I don't think that should be controversial advice. And I'm, I'm not talking about being a celebrity preacher or a hot shot or trying to build a platform on your charisma or something like that. But um, uh, the Lord told us through the prophet Jeremiah that in the new covenant, he was going to give them shepherds who will feed my people on knowledge and understanding. Why you wouldn't want to do the very best you could do at that and prepare the best you possibly can, and to uh, uh, grow in your knowledge of the Word so that that feast, that meal, that knowledge and understanding upon which you'll be feeding the Lord's lambs, why wouldn't you want that to be as rich as it could be? Now, I'm not saying you become a, a theologian in residence now where you never leave your study and be among the people of God, but I, I just don't want to see us, you know, downplaying the importance of really good sermons in the lives of the people of God and to at least be aiming at that. That should be a goal that preachers have. Are there unique challenges to preaching today? And if so, what are they? Andy, you referenced attention span earlier. Yeah, I think, I think our smartphones are, are, are shrinking attention span. Uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, I see it happening in myself. Um, so that's it. I think uh, last couple of years, you know, we live in such a divided nation and it's just everybody's talking about it. It's obvious. And with the current events, some of the hot button current events have pressed on pastors to speak to them and address them and be relevant and tell us, you know, what to do about, you know, vaccine mandates or about, um, you know, racial um, issues or political issues, 2020 uh, a presidential election, all of these things. I, as a pastor, have had pressure put on me by church members to address things. You know, the ones that put pressure on me didn't agree with each other, but they didn't know it. So it'd be good for them to get in, in, in a room and be kind of fun to watch them battle it out. Um, but both of them would like me to be the mouthpiece for their view. Um, and so, I, but I, I, would, I would shrink back from the word unique. I think in every generation, there've been these kinds of issues and pressures. 
Um, but they, I do feel those now in our present setting a lot. I don't know if this is unique, but it's, it's a factor I'm feeling more and more. I'd be interested to know if, if the brothers here feel the same way or brothers here. Um, I think for understandable reasons, we are witnessing a, a reaction to any sense of authority in any sort of environment. Authority can only be oppressive or it could be abusive. Or the idea of loving and beneficent authority being exercised for the good of people is something that it's just a category we don't have, whether it's authority in the home or authority in the church or authority in the wider world in different social spheres. And um, we as pastors are trying to think very carefully about this. I would encourage other pastors to do the same. The Bible does speak of the office of elder being one that executes uh, rule. However you understand that word, it's used multiple times. Uh, the sheep are told to obey their leaders and submit to those who are over them in the Lord. Already we're in territory that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. And I want to emphasize, understandably so, there are a lot of jerks out there who have abused their authority and hurt people. And it, but but the, re, the response is not, well, let's just, let's just sort of evacuate this office and this work of preaching from all of its authority. Titus was still told, preach with all authority, let no one disregard you. So it's not an option for us to say, well, let's just remove all the power dynamics in the world. Authority is given as a gift from the Lord. What we need is a generation of pastors and husbands and leaders who are exhibiting for a watching world the benevolent use of authority for the good of people, for the thriving of the sheep. Like the response is not, let's get rid of the office of pastor or the authority of preaching. Let, let's show them how Christ would do this and how his under shepherds would do this, not in a domineering First Peter 5 fashion, but in a way that, that accords with what the chief shepherd was like and that actually is for the upbuilding of the people of God. Let's show them the good use of authority. Um, so, so I really want to emphasize, even though I'm all on board for Lloyd-Jones' vision of preaching as far as exertion, force, power, authority, like sign me up for that, and I'm trying to encourage my brothers here to be engaged in that kind of work, but do not, do not think that means heavy-handed, hollering at people, foaming at the mouth, um, yeah, being dictatorial in the way you speak to people or carry your office. You have power. You have authority. Use it in a way that really does build people up and that honors Christ and shows forth our true shepherd who is gentle and lowly in heart. I think, um, <clears throat> you know, as, as my, my brother Andy was saying, there's nothing new under the sun. So in that way, nothing unique. Uh, I think the reality, uh, even mentioning, you know, phones, I think what's going on anywhere is going on everywhere. Um, so there's nothing new under the sun, but our people have more access to everything going on under the sun quicker. And, uh, and so I think there's a unique, like, there are pressure points and places of conflict and a skepticism and a leaning in to see if you mess up on a particular thing uh, on so many categories because of, of our access to all that's going on under the sun. So I think, you know, I think that's one of the difficulties, um, yeah, that I sense and, and other pastors sense. And, and just, um, and because of some of the political climate, I think you can make a statement and at once uh, get, get labeled the opposite directions. And, and it's like, but I, like I said, this statement from the scriptures and this side says that's this, and that side says that's this. But those are the opposite. I'm, again, like, can y'all go get in the same room and talk to each other? Because you both just said I committed an opposite error, which I don't think I can commit both at the same time. So I think, I think something's going on here. Uh, and I was just preaching the scriptures. And so I think, I think some of those pressures, I think the application is just you just keep preaching the Bible, though. Yeah, so I don't, in that way, it's not unique. Andy, could you speak to... Um if we're all, if the preachers in the room are seeking to pursue a, pursue a more biblical uh, view and practice of preaching, how can pastors elevate their congregation's appetite for true preaching? Well, I guess simply keep doing it and be faithful to do it. Um, there's just uh, a benefit I think I've seen in my church over my 23 years being there. People come to the church on Sundays expecting to hear from God, to hear from God's word. Doesn't matter whether it's me preaching or not. Um, you know, that's so I, I there's no congregation 
that I'm uh, that I know or in the world that I would rather preach to than my home church, than my brothers and sisters that are, I'm in covenant fellowship with, because I love sharing God's word with them. But it's it's built up over a long, long time, many, many years of doing it. So I think there's just that habitual pattern of coming and you're going to hear the text and, and you just know where I'm going. It's like next week we're going to be in this in these next here it's been Job, next couple of chapters in Job. And so I've had people tell me, we're reading ahead, we know where you're going. You know, I'm like a slow-moving target, like a blimp going across the sky. It's like, all right, see exactly where it's heading. But that, you know, people have that expectation. They're going to hear from God's word in that, in that scripture. Okay, I want us to move to a lightning round. I have a list in front of me of several pieces of advice that young ministers often hear. And I want your hot takes. So that's a brief answer. What do you make of this advice? Yay or nay? Thumbs up, thumbs down. Are you men ready? If, if Andy goes first. <laughs> okay, piece of advice number one. Be yourself. Clint. Submitted to the glory of God. I don't know what that means. I, yeah, I mean, I don't... <laughs> Who else can I be? I mean, preaching through personality. So uh, that's one definition, preaching through personality. So be, be yourself. Don't, don't affect. Don't take on an affect. So I would say maybe yes. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one. I think it's Lloyd-Jones who said preaching is theolo- theology coming through personality or something in his logic on fire, thing, something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, be yourself within limits. The most important part of the sermon is the first five minutes. Let me rephrase that. The most important five minutes of the sermon is the first five minutes. Chapter and verse. So, yes. <laughs> no, I'm saying, like, oh, you says want who? The chapter and verse. No, yes, oh. says who? Says who? Like, there's not a verse in the Bible that's going to tell me that, so... I have no idea. I mean, it could, it could be different people, different moments. Some people just come and say, the thing you said then, that was in the middle. Somebody else said, I was so convicted about it. That was toward the end. Somebody else really was grabbed at the beginning. If what you're saying is be engaging at the beginning of the sermon, I'm in favor of that. And sign off that the most important five minutes is the first five minutes. I have no idea. It's different for each person in the pew. I second what Andy said. I doubt anyone would say about my sermons that the best five minutes are the first five minutes. Certainly wasn't for Lloyd-Jones. He was boring at the beginning. Can I tell a Lloyd-Jones story that I heard from Don Carson? (laughs) D.A. Carson told this story. I I love this. He went to hear the doctor preach. Uh, He'd heard incredible things about him. And so he finally made time in his schedule to go hear him years and years ago, of course. And um, he said, as I sat down to listen, as the sermon began, and I listened for a while, I thought, this guy is overrated. And if you ever heard the way a Lloyd-Jones sermons begins, you'll understand why. The, the text to which I should like to call your attention today, it's the same thing every time, isn't it? It's kind of boring, and it's like, huh, um, I hope he gets heated up. Um, then Don Carson said, 20, 30 minutes into the sermon, I changed my mind, and I felt that this man was the greatest preacher I had ever heard in my life. He said, but then... Something happened, and at the end of the sermon, I wasn't thinking about Lloyd-Jones at all. I had been transported into the heavenly realms and was thinking about the greatness of Christ. And Lloyd-Jones had disappeared. So from overrated to greatest preacher I've ever heard to I'm not even caring about Lloyd-Jones anymore. I'm thinking about Christ. That's a pretty good transition. Uh, Avoid preaching over 45 minutes. I'm not going first again. Uh, it depends on the preacher. Some can preach in a way that's engaging over 45 minutes. Some really should not. Spurgeon, Spurgeon uh, almost never preached over 45 minutes. But I've, I've seen preachers, I don't want them to stop. I and mean, we're at 45, and I'm like, brother, you go for another 45 for all I care. You know, this is great. I think generally it's true. I try to avoid speaking too long. Yeah, um, uh, something uh, Pastor Andy said earlier, just when they start turning off, and, and like, okay, this is, I want, I, want to, I want to find that spot, and I want to try to get them to be able to pay attention a little longer, generally. Um, but, yeah. In every sermon, you should make a beeline to the cross. I'm for that. <laughs> to be clear, a beeline is like a... 
right? Did you just make the letter B? Is that, was that? No, I just mean a B doesn't fly straight, right? Is it, you know? And that's a, a misheard quote of Spurgeon, isn't that it? That is not a Spurgeon quote, at least not that I can tell, but it's often attributed to Spurgeon. Yeah, I think um, Spurgeon's own experience was uh, he was under great conviction as a teenager and, and went to place after place after place where he heard good, sound exposition, but no one told him how he could have his sins forgiven. And um, he also told a story in lectures to my servant, uh, students about um, uh, a young man who preached a sermon, an older man heard him, and after it was over, he, he courageously asked the older pastor, what did you think of my sermon? That takes a lot of guts. Um, and the older uh, sermon said, I did not think it was a very good sermon at all. He said, well, why not? Wasn't it, didn't I deal with all of the doctrinal points? Yes, it wasn't it well-researched? Yes, as far as that goes, but it still wasn't a good sermon. Well, why not? There was no Christ in it. And it cannot be a good sermon if there's no Christ in it. So I don't know about a beeline, but at some point in the sermon, every week at First Baptist Durham, a, a lost person will be told simply and clearly how their sins can be forgiven. At some point. I wouldn't say beeline, but somewhere in there, the, the person who's desperate for forgiveness will find how they can be forgiven every week. Now, that's not 100% of what I'm doing. It's actually only about 5% time-wise, but it's going to happen every week. This is a slightly different question, but you should preach Christ in every text. Well, I'll just pick up. I think, yes, I think at some point you need to, as Spurgeon said in that illustration, in, in every village and hamlet and town in England, there is a road to London. So from every text of Scripture, there is a way to get to the great metropolis of Scripture, which is Christ. And if I can't find it, I will beat down a hedgerow to get there. So I think at some point you're going to find some way to go from Leviticus to Christ, from Revelation to Christ, from uh, a Pauline epistle to Christ. Absolutely, at some point you're going to preach Christ and him crucified. But you're going to do other work too. There's other things going on in the text like healthy marriage, good, uh, good parenting, or finances, whatever's in the text. But at some point preach Christ. Yeah, I, I would just only tweak that slightly, and I agree with everything Andy just said, but the whole hamlet, town, village thing leads to the metropolis. That's true, but not every hamlet, village, or town is Christ, is London, right? So I just think we need to tweak that slightly to make sure we're not drawing connections where they don't exist or seeing Christ where he is not and um, doing kind of clumsy hermeneutical gymnastics to... I, I, I think, I remember hearing John Piper say this in the, the COVID T4G. He was asked to preach on something like Christ from every, every text or something like that, what it, you know, how, how to do that. And I appreciated what Piper said. It came to my mind as a slight corrective to maybe some mistaken notions about that. He said, my task when I come to preach a passage is to ask what has the Holy Spirit revealed in this passage of Scripture for the people of God or for the world? And that's my errand. Now, that will typically bring you to Christ in some form or fashion, but that's the question. So I don't like starting with, okay, what am I going to say? How am I going to get to the cross from this text? That's a secondary question, really. What is the Spirit revealed in this text? And then, and then if there is legitimate exegetical contours that will get me to the cross, then I will pursue them. That's a lot more boring than make a beeline to the cross or preach Christ in every message, but I think it will help us to be more exegetically faithful in how we interpret the Scriptures, which is not a contradiction at all to what Andy just said. Let me ask a follow-up question to that. So, if you don't find any of those clear contours, what are you doing? Well, I, I would prefer to say what Andy said, that because of context, I mean context like what the gathering is and who's present, I'm going to try to make sure in every sermon someone hears the good news about how they can find saving life in Christ. But I'm not going to necessarily make that the main purpose or point of every passage I'm to preach, because it is not. People will often go to the road to Emmaus, for example, and say, Jesus, you know, uh, expounded all the things uh, from, uh, I'm butchering this, but it's a paraphrase, but from Moses and the prophets concerning himself. That doesn't mean that he went to every single verse and said, now, here, here's how this points to the cross, or, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think that's what he envisions. There's a general sweep of Scripture and a meta-narrative, and I, I'm just a little concerned sometimes we rough, 
we, we round out the edges of text and we squeeze text to try to say things they're not saying. So I would just say be faithful in your hermeneutics. Be faithful in your exegesis. What is the Spirit revealed in this passage? And, um, and how can I show forth the person of God in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a legitimate question to ask. Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think that's what I wanted to get at was just I'm going to back out far enough in the meta narrative every sermon to make sure. So when I say make a beeline to the cross, that's what I mean by that. So I'm avoiding all of the, the concerns that, that Alex is saying, but I want to make sure every single sermon, a non-Christian can become a Christian. They've heard the gospel. And I want to make sure to be faithful exegetically to what's going on and back out far enough in that meta narrative to, to point to the cross and where that fits. In that. I think what Don Carson says, and this is helpful, you're preaching John 3.16. Well, you want to see that verse in its immediate context in the surrounding pericope. Then you want to zoom out and see and it's it, see it in its Johannine context, Johnine context, and then you might zoom out to see it in its canonical context. If you're able to do that well, I think that's a good thing to try to do when you preach. Yeah, at the beginning of Calvin's Institutes, he gives two kind of headings that I always keep in mind every time I preach. Uh, nearly all the wisdom that we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. So I think I would like to see what does this text teach me about God and what does it teach me about myself? And what do you think Calvin's going to find about ourselves? Depravity, <laughs> you know, wickedness, the need, the need for a savior. So there's a way, I don't know, calling that a beeline, but yes, it's the passage is talking about marriage or money or um, submitting to, to governing authorities. Somewhere in there, there's going to be human brokenness and wickedness and sin, and we need a savior. So it isn't actually going to be artificial. I'm going to spend most of my time explaining what the Holy Spirit put this in. the. I do that all the time with Job. I, week after week, I say, why did the Holy Spirit give us this? What is he seeking to address? I said in a very serious way to my uh, church about three or four weeks ago, because this is at the end of maybe 25 or 30 sermons in Job or more. I said, do you, do you folks understand what's happening here? The Holy Spirit is using me to tell you that you're going to need the book of Job sometime in your life. You're going to have, maybe not to his level, but you're going to have some devastating circumstances that are going to come in to your world and tempt you to think that God is being unjust and that he's abandoned you. And you need to get ready for that. So listen today to what you need to hear to get ready for that suffering that's coming, and it's going to come. I mean, you could have heard a pin drive. It was very sobering, sobering thing, so it's... Alex, the very thing you're saying. What is the Holy Spirit intending by giving this book of Job? I think that's a great place for us to close. Andy, in a moment, I'd like for you to pray for us. Uh, Alex, what is the plan for the next few minutes? Uh, Ten-minute break. We'll come back in here for book giveaways, and then our brother Andy will conclude our conference by preaching to us. Uh, so, so, yeah, ten minutes to twenty. We'll be back in this room. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Every good and perfect gift comes from you, the Father of the heavenly lights, and you've given us what we need. And the topics that we've discussed today on preaching have been helpful, even if we are not preachers, but just uh, feeding on good preaching from others, uh, still thankful. I thank you for these brothers. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who are sitting here with us. And I thank you for the grace of God in Christ, uh, which uh, gives us hope of eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.